I'm going to start this morning by looking at uh, Nama Rupa and consciousness, and then this afternoon we'll spend our time exploring what we mean by the notion of self. I'm going to be basing um, everything I say on the texts within your handout, which I hope you've all picked up. Uh, not everyone. <laughs> oh, there you go. I'm sorry about that. Um, but actually, as is my want, I'm going to start with a citation that's not on the handout. <laughs> Now, what I, I, I think I really need to emphasize is that what the Buddha is concerned to address is the experience that we are having right now. The experience, likewise, that may become more, more stabilized and clear when we sit still and we pay attention to the breathing and the body and our feelings, that that's the starting point. That we don't find in the early uh, suttas, the early discourses that are in the Pali Canon, any mention of the ultimate truth. Unfortunately, from my point of view, Buddhist thought has become bedeviled by this doctrine of uh, the two truths. That there is some ultimate truth, param arta satya, a truth of final meaning or highest meaning, and samvirti satya, truths which are just conventional or relative. All Buddhist schools of thought from the Theravada, through all the different Mahayana philosophical schools, are to some degree premised on this distinction, on this split. Of course, a great deal of ink has been spilled trying to reconcile these two truths and to tell you that in fact they're not really separate at all, but they're just different ways of talking of the same thing, or something like that. But I would suggest that the whole distinction is uh, unnecessary. That uh, the Buddha spoke for 45 years, as far as we know, never having recourse to such a vocabulary, such a language, such an assumption. So one of the problems I find um, in trying to understand the, the import of what the Buddha was trying to do, is to clear away um, a lot of Buddhist ideas that have somehow obscured the field 
in some ways I found it necessary to unlearn a lot of what I was taught. And perhaps philosophically, the thing I've had to unlearn with most difficulty is this idea of ultimate and conventional truths. And just to repeat, these terms do not appear in the Pali Canon. They're just not there. And it's not that the two, that the, the, that terminology is not there, but I feel that that whole way of thinking is alien to the early discourses. The Buddha does not um, start his presentations by, by essentially a dualistic model, ultimate and relative. He could have done, because what the Brahmanic tradition of his time posited, although it didn't use that exact wording, was an ultimate truth called Brahman, or God, or Atman, self. We'll come back to that. And uh, a world of multiplicity and diversity that in fact it called Namarupa. Namarupa was the way in which uh, Brahmanic tradition described the, uh, the world of multiplicity and plurality that we experience through the senses. But that was considered to be somehow a false compared to the unitary, undifferentiated oneness of God. My own sense is the Buddha um, sought to break free of that whole way of thinking, which likewise characterizes much of religious thought in all traditions, with the possible exception of Taoism. But Christianity too, in its classical theology, distinguishes between the creator and the creation, and then struggles to reconcile the two, just as Buddhists have struggled to reconcile absolute and relative truth. One might argue that that way of thinking is characteristic of the traditional religious mindset. And I, don't, I think the Buddha wanted to have nothing to do with that at all. And instead, his concern was to address what I think we could call experience, or life, as it is presented to us, uh, phenomenologically, in other words, in terms of what appears, what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch, what we intuit within our own thoughts and feelings and emotions. Now there's a text in the Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, 3523, for uh, those who want to look it up later which is a short uh, sutta or discourse called the Sabha Sutta, the discourse on the all, or everything, Sabha. And just, it's very short, I'm going to read it out. Monks, the Buddha says, I will, teach you the, I will teach you the all. Now listen to this. And what bhikkhus is the all, the I and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body 
and tactile sensations, the mind and dhammas, usually translated as mental objects, but what it means is whatever is experienced that is not experienced through the senses, the physical senses. So in other words, feelings, emotions, thoughts, inner processes, our inner life, if you wish. This is called the all. If anyone monk should say, I reject this all, and I'll make known another all, that would be a mere empty boast on his part. If he were questioned, he would not be able to reply, and further, he would meet with vexation. For, for what reason? Because, monks, that all would not be within his domain. This text, I think, is, at least for me, uh, a, somewhat, a foundational document. It makes it quite clear that the Buddha is not interested in anything that is somehow beyond the domain of our sensory experience. And by sensory, he includes mental experience. There's no room in here uh, for some kind of transcendent reality, however we name that. Some reality that, um, in some ways, cannot be known by our ordinary consciousness, to which we have to appeal to some, some privileged kind of consciousness. And this is very much the case in the Upanishads, where, where the divine, God, Brahman, is only accessible by basically uh, differentiating yourself totally from the phenomenal experience in order to arrive at what in some of the later Upanishads is called Turiya, the fourth state, which is neither that of waking state, sleeping state, sorry, dreaming state, deep sleep, but is something else. And that has access to Brahman, Brahman being utterly other than anything to do with phenomenal experience. I think what happened in the history of Buddhism in India is that it, over the centuries, mutated into another Indian religion. And this is one of the reasons I feel that Buddhism failed in India. It failed in realizing its, uh, its social project, on the one hand, of the replacement of the caste system. And I think it also failed in its philosophical project in developing a way of thinking that was not premised on this split, ultimate, relative, God, Maya distinction. So the all is what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch and feel within ourselves. In other words, very much what then becomes the focus of the practice of mindfulness. If you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, which as I'm sure most of you are, are aware of that text, it presents a practice of meditation that is entirely concerned with refining awareness regarding our phenomenal experience. It starts by going in, a monk goes into a forest, sits at the root of a tree and becomes aware of his breath. 
And then once the attention is stabilized in the breath, it's extended to the rest of the body, and then to the feelings, then to mental states, and then to what is again called Dhamma, which means, and the Buddha describes it as such, the five aggregates, matter, feeling, perception, inclination, and consciousness. In other words, the totality of our phenomenal experience at any given time, which corresponds, is another way of, of saying, the all. There is no word in Pali or Sanskrit or Tibetan that corresponds to our word in English, experience. Or even, in fact, to our, the way we use the word life. There is a word in, in these languages for life, but it means life in a, in a sort of strict biological sense. Whereas when we say, what is the meaning of life, what I think we're, we're getting at is the meaning of this experience, this existence, this condition of birth, sickness, aging, and death. What is that all about? How do I live truly and authentically? And, and responsibly uh, within that condition I find myself. So we could translate the all, which in English does sound a bit clumsy, um, as, as life or experience. And what monks is experience? The eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors and so on. This is called experience and so on. I don't think the Buddha was interested in questions uh, about the nature of reality, uh, and particularly in um, an ontological sense. In other words, to, to try to understand what things really are. That certainly becomes a, a key interest in later Buddhist philosophy. And again, the whole notion of ultimate truth is basically designed to answer that kind of ontological question. You know, what is the nature of things? What are things really? That was not the Buddha's interest. The Buddha was interested, as he repeatedly said, in dukkha and the ending of craving. Again, this is often stated as dukkha, as suffering and the ending of suffering. But when you look at how he defines dukkha niroda, the ending of suffering, he defines it as uh, the ending of craving or grasping. So I would summarize his project as that of understanding dukkha. Suffering is an inadequate translation, but it'll do for today. In other words, the existential condition we are in now and the ending of craving, which is craving being the inappropriate response to our condition that only leads to further discontent and more significantly prevents us from opening up into a way of life that is not conditioned by craving. So in other words, he's concerned with um, a clear and still 
acceptance of the state we are in now and another way of responding to that such that our lives are enabled to flourish rather than to get caught up in cyclic patterns of um, attachment and fear and hatred and egoism and so on. Now we could unpack this idea of the all or experience through the model of the five aggregates and I'm assuming that you've come across this fivefold dis- uh, description of experience. Just to, I'll repeat them again. Rupa, which means matter or form. Vedana, feeling. Sanya, perception. Sankara, inclination. Usually translated as mental formations. Which, frankly, is, is really quite incorrect. It's not what it means. Uh, it suggests something that has been formed mental formations or volitional formations. But in fact the word sankara is an active term. You have sankara or samskara, sankara in Pali, and samskrta or sankata, which means that which does the forming and that which is formed. Formation suggests something that is formed But the word sankara is that which does the forming. That's why I prefer inclination. We we incline towards doing something. Sankara defines the active dimension of our experience, the responsive or reactive dimension of our experience, not what is formed. So inclination, I think, works better. And consciousness is the fifth. Form, feeling, perception, inclination and consciousness. We're going to come back to that because the model that I'm I'm going to look at, which is, I think, a more complex and dynamic way of talking about the same thing, is Nama Rupa and consciousness, or Nama Rupa Vijnana, Nama Rupa and consciousness. So let's go to the beginning of our text and I've opened it with a a quote from the Brihadyaranaka Upanishad which is one of the Upanishads that scholars recognize as uh, predating the Buddha. The Upanishads uh, are also called uh, the Vedanta. Vedanta means the culmination or the end of the Vedas and the Upanishads actually mean Uh, teachings which are given orally to the person sitting close next to you, or something like that, whispered teachings from a guru to a disciple. And uh, they're a body of literature. It's a very beautiful literature. In fact, as a literary form, it's actually more readable than the Buddhist texts. Now, in this particular citation... Um, where what we find here is how the term Nama Rupa was used at the Buddha's time. So Nama Rupa, and I haven't translated it yet, name and form, name, form, um, is not a term the Buddha invented. 
In fact, it's a very good example of a term that he borrowed from his own culture and then gave a, a very different spin to and used it in a very different uh, way to how it was used in traditional Indian thought. Again, this is characteristic of the, the, the early discourses, is the Buddha's great skill in wordplay and taking terms that had a given meaning and radically transforming them. We might come up with some other examples of that, but let's just stick to Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa, by the way, is still a term used in India today. In fact, I came across a, a magazine on interior decoration called Nama Rupa. <laughs> so Nama Rupa suggests um, the, uh, the plurality and the diversity of the world. And let's read this very early source that will illustrate this. All this the all, was then undifferentiated. This is a reflection on the classical Brahmanic understanding of creation. All this was then undifferentiated. It got differentiated by name and form so that one could say, he is so-and-so and has such-and-such such a form. Therefore, at present also, all beings are differentiated by Nama Rupa. Remember, there's no and in the original. Name form. All beings are differentiated by Nama Rupa so that one can say, oh, he is so-and-so and has such-and-such such a form. So there are two things that are, um, uh, are implied here. One is uh, plurality multiplicity, differentiation. In other words, the phenomenal world of differences, of different things. Everyone I look at in this room is a, is a distinct, different person with a particular form and a particular name. So name, form, are the ways in which we distinguish one person or one uh, in anything from another person and object. So on the one hand, it suggests plurality differentiation. On the other hand, it suggests um, individual identity. In other words, this person there is different from that person there. And that is what constitutes their, uh, their difference. In other words, their being who they are, which is not identical to others, but is somehow suggests their peculiar identity from others, who I am, in other words. Now, it took me many years before um, I understood uh, what Nama Rupa meant. Um, when I was trained uh, as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, Nama was said to refer to uh, the mind and Rupa was said to refer to the body. And um, in terms of the five skandhas, uh, Rupa was the first skanda form, and Nama referred to the other four. In fact, I double-checked this recently in Tsongkhapa, a 14th century Tibetan Lama, and that's exactly what he says. That's the orthodox view. In other words, it's just a rather 
fancy way of saying body and mind. But clearly that's not the case. And what unfortunately uh, happened in the development of Buddhist thought is that it forgot the original context in which this term was used. It lost sight of the fact that this was a word that had a very clear meaning at the Buddha's time in the context of Brahmanic and Upanishadic thought. So one of the great advantages of um, historical critical studies of Buddhism and its, um, and its background is that these kinds of um, connections get made again. And I think this is important to mention because it suggests that when we hear the Buddha using the word Namarupa, we have to remember that probably for at least the educated people in his audience, and this would have been maybe, say, his monks and so on, Namarupa would already have meant something. It meant the differentiated world, and it suggested the notion of a clearly recognizable individual. And again, this is a term the Buddha then calls atta, self, which we'll come to this afternoon, um, in distinction from the classical notion of atman, or self in the sort of ultimate sense of our true inner essence, which is identical to that of brahman. I don't want to get into this too much, but I think it is worth just being clear that that was probably the context in which the Buddha's taught, and that would have been the pre-understanding that his audience would have had. Now, I'm going to jump a bit and go to the top of the next page, where the Buddha then uh, gives us uh, his own working uh, understanding of Namarupa. And he says, and what, monks, is name and form? Feeling, perception, intention, contact, attention. This is called nama, name. And the four great elements and the form derived from the four great elements, this is called form. Thus this name and form are together called Namarupa, name and form. Now, this is clearly not what is uh, meant uh, in the Upanishads. This is a very good example of how the Buddha uses this term and now gives it another meaning. And he defines Nama um, uh, psychologically, in a way. Now, we have to be very clear here. It's, he doesn't include consciousness. This is the crucial point. Uh, he lists feeling, perception, intention, contact, attention, but not consciousness, vijnana. That's not included in nama. And as we'll see later on, nama rupa is how he describes, uh, is for him what is the, the condition that allows consciousness to be. We'll see some clear examples of that. Um, in fact, if we just jump one paragraph. Um, 
with the arising of contact, there is no with, with the arising of nutriment or substance, whatever that means. There is the arising of form or f- physical bodies. With the arising of contact, there is feeling. With the arising of contact, there is perception. With the arising of contact, there is inclinations. And then, with the arising of name and form, there is the arising of consciousness. Now, this is not a model you'll find in any traditional Buddhist psychological teaching. But when we go back to the source texts, we find a different picture. This is what I find very exciting, actually. That we find passages in the early Pali Canon that actually contradict Buddhist orthodoxy. It's quite amazing. I hope, I'm, I hope this is not too technical, by the way. We'll have room for discussion later, but all I can hope to do in a day's workshop is really give you a sketch of the territory, and then it'll be up to you to pursue this further, I'm afraid. But let's go back to Nama. Uh, how does the Buddha unpack the word Nama? He has these things which are sometimes called in Theravada Buddhism the, the Nama factors, the five Nama factors. I would put them in a slightly different order. I'd start with contact, and then feeling, perception, intention, attention. We don't have time to do more than a rough sketch of these five, but they are rather important. When I trained um, as a monk uh, with the Gelugpa Tibetan school, we did spend a lot of time studying these five, but they were called something else. They were called the, the five omnipresent mental factors. This comes from the uh, teachings of Asanga, who's a 4th, 5th century AD Indian Buddhist philosopher. And in his uh, Buddhist psychology, contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention are considered the, uh, the, the, the kundronga, the always moving five, literally, or the five omni-active functions. And for Asanga, uh, consciousness is not possible unless these five functions are active. So again, Asanga clearly distinguishes between consciousness and these five. But what Asanga has forgotten is that these five were called by the Buddha the Nama factors, Nama or name. That's, I never learned that until I came back to the Pali Canon. But again, I do think Asanga is, gives a, a very good understanding of these five. What these five describe are what one might call the, the arc of experience. And again, I'm using the word experience to, as a synonym for the all, the totality of our sensory experience that we're having right now. Now, I think what the Buddha did is describe this as an arc. And rupa refers to Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. And they impact the sensitive organism, the wakeful organism, 
that's contact, there is an impact of the world upon the senses. This is called uh, passo in Pali, which means literally touch. The word we translate in English as contact is actually the same word um, that we use to describe tactile sensation. Passo, sparsa, touch. So in a sense, Nama Rupa, together, describes the arc from the first contact or impact or touch that the, the external world, but again we must be careful here, the Buddha doesn't talk of internal and external. He doesn't, or very rarely, does he set up that split. He talks of experience as an arc, as a spectrum and he doesn't, although he utilizes terms to differentiate phases within this spectrum, we must be careful not to think of them as discrete, uh, separate entities. The later Abhidharma uh, tradition did exactly that. It's trying to re redu reductively think of each of these elements as elements, somehow self-contained, self-existent. And the philosophy of Nagarjuna was, in a sense, a deconstruction of that fiction and a return to the more um, inclusive and uh, embracing uh, sense of experience as a spectrum, an unbroken spectrum, starting with the data of the world, what we see here, smell, taste, touch, that impacts, paso, or touches the senses, that then, and now we must go to the passage immediately, one below, with the arising of contact, there is the arising of feeling. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of perception. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of inclination. And again, this is tucked away in the Sanyutta Nikaya, 22.56. So, contact triggers, as it were, three things. It triggers a certain emotional tone or colouring to experience, which is usually described as pleasure, pain, or neither one nor the other. But again, we must be careful not to think too reductively about these. This is just a, a sort of a shorthand for describing how experience is always feels a certain way. It's, this is now very much within the realm of subjectivity, as we would say. We can all listen to the same piece of Bartok, and some of us will feel great pleasure, and other of us, others of us will want to run out of the room. In other words, experience feels different to us. And the same experience or the same data can feel very differently to any one of us at different times in our life. So Vedana or feeling or feeling tone is slightly better translation, uh, is trying to point to this um, uh, initial uh, subjective uh, tonality that we experience when the world impacts our senses. And again, not just the world, but also, let's say, what, what arises up within our minds, 
we might ex experience suddenly anxiety or or depression or confusion or desire and we feel a certain way about that too it feels pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere in between there's a lot of confusion around this neither pleasant nor unpleasant um, I think this is just shorthand for what can't be registered as explicitly pleasure, pleasurable or painful it's, dis, it, it, it's a spectrum really I think that runs from agony on the one hand to ecstasy on the other and everything in between everything in between that's Vedana so contact gives rise to Vedana, to this feeling. Contact also gives rise to perception, sanya. Now sanya, if you analyze the word literally, nya is the Sanskrit root to know, and sang means together. So it's knowing together. It's what puts our experience together. What, as it were, enables it to make sense. There's a passage which I haven't got on the handout. Um, and the only passage actually where the Buddha seems to say something about sanya, he says sanya is the capacity for us to, to be able to know that is white, that is blue, that is red, that is yellow, which are the four primary colors in ancient Indian thought. So sanya is the principle of differentiation itself. But differentiation in such a way that um, our experience is not just, doesn't just feel a certain way, but it is intelligible. It makes sense. We're able to automatically, without any thinking, say, oh, look, there's John. Oh, look, there's some Tibetan prayer flags. Oh, look, the door's about 25 yards from here. We have learned through our evolution as children and so on, to read and describe and make sense of our world in a particular way according to our culture um, and no doubt also according to biological needs and so forth and so on. So sanya is the, that dimension of experience that is um, intelligible. It's very difficult actually to get one's head around this because it seems to be it's so obvious in a way one of the best sources that I've personally found helpful here is some of the work of Oliver Sacks the man who mistook his wife for a hat and so on which to me is a wonderful way by looking at um, uh, people who have had certain brain lesions or strokes or aphasias or whatever they're called people who have very weird perceptions um, that enables us I think to become conscious of the fact that what we are experiencing is in a sense what we have learned to describe a very simple example when I look at the door and I look at the red thing above it I see exit the Latin for he leaves now, if I were Chinese and had never learned the Roman alphabet, that would just be a bunch of red lines on a white ground, much as Chinese ideograms probably are to most of us. It doesn't make any sense. You learn it, and then the meaning, exit, is not something we have to consciously 
uh, sort of say, oh, yes, it's a line, uh, vertical to horizontal, so uh, it's an E. Then it, it appears as though the word exit comes off the wall itself. So that is perception. Admittedly, I'm, read, I, I'm teasing this out in ways that classical Buddhist psychology doesn't. But I feel this is entirely congruous with how the word is used in the classical texts. I think modern, uh, our modern ways of, of understanding these things, I think, uh, are extremely helpful in enriching and clarifying these classical terms. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of inclination. In other words, when the world doesn't appear, or experience doesn't appear to us just as something that feels a certain way, that something that makes sense in a certain way, that we can talk about, think about, but also the world experience appears to us as an arena for action. In other words, as soon as we find ourselves in a situation, we are already, in a sense, responding to it. We're thinking about it. We're judging it. We're thinking about what we might say or do within it. Or we feel ourselves bored and we get restless. Inclination is, um, the Buddha sometimes gives us a synonym for inclination. He gives this word chetana, uh, which means intention which is one of the three nama factors. Sorry, five nama factors. So we have feeling, perception, intention. Intention doesn't mean, in Buddhism, conscious, deliberate choice. That's one end of that spectrum. But anything that inclines us to move or tend towards a certain thought or speech or action, that is inclination, even if it's automatic and habitual and reactive and totally not deliberate. That is still chetana. In um, Asanga, chetana is defined as um, uh, uh, yulla yoajebe semjong in Tibetan, which means the mental factor that moves the mind to the object. The moving of of the mind to the object. The Buddha doesn't use the words subject and object. Those are terms that occur quite a bit later in the development of Buddhist thought. But he does recognize intention, inclination. That experience is always somehow inclined, potentially or actually, to an engagement with what's happening. And then the fourth one, Um, is attention. In other words, um, we select and focus on particular areas or objects within our field of uh, experience. In other words, if we're not just darting around madly all over the place, but because of our our longings and our needs and so on, we we home in on particular points of experience. And this is the factor that is then developed into concentration, into even the jhanas, are all developments of attention. Now we have to be careful here um, and recognize that uh, the Buddha doesn't present us with with this picture of a world 
contacting our senses that generates a feeling tone, perceptions of objects, inclinations, and our focusing in on particular things, because he's trying, as a scientist might, to give us an accurate description of reality. That's not the aim of the Buddha's project. The aim of the Buddha's project is to give us a way of, 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 of encountering our experience that will enable us or help us realize the goals of his path. In other words, to become wise, compassionate, awake, and so on and so forth. These are our functional terms within um, a broader, um, I suppose you can use the word, spiritual journey or path. Feeling is important because feeling is the basis on which we react, often inappropriately. We try to possess or, or control what we like, and we try to reject and get rid of what we don't like. Perception is important because one of the reasons we react with attachment and grasping and so on is because we misperceive experience. And the three primary misperceptions, which were alluded to in one of the comments at the beginning, is that we take what is impermanent to be permanent, what is dukkha to be sukha, what is suffering to be pleasurable, and what is not self to be self. We'll come back to that this afternoon. And that is the practice of vipassana. Vipassana, as opposed to shamatha, just focusing the mind, vipassana is the cultivation of perception. In other words, training ourselves, often laboriously and for weeks and months and years on end, to notice that things are changing, impermanent, to notice that things are, maybe suffering is not quite the right word, but things are not ultimately dependable or reliable. They can't grant us the kind of eternal well-being we seek. And to notice that what's going on in experience is not intrinsically me or mine. So the training in meditation is the training in perception. It's also training in attention. Without the attention, we don't have sufficient focus and stability to notice our experience in such a way. But again, that's why attention is emphasized. Because it has a certain use within the process of realizing certain goals. Not because it happens to be the most accurate description of the nature of reality. That's, that's, that's irrelevant. It may be the case, but in terms of the Buddha's practice, that's not its purpose. And then we have intention, which is important to bear in mind because that is the source of our behavior. That's the source of how we... We think, we draw conclusions, we say things and do things. In other words, this ties directly into the practice of ethics. The problem is a lot of our actions are driven by 
habit, by fear, by desire, are not properly thought through. They're what our culture does. They're opinions that we've been programmed with, we've inherited, and we speak and act and think unthinkingly, unreflectively, in an unexamined way. So the importance of emphasizing intention is to recognize that every moment of experience is um, potentially or actually a, a moral situation, a situation in which we can cause ourselves harm or cause others harm, or in which we can do good and cause others well-being. So the Nama factors, um, and contact too, contact is important, in order that we become more attuned to how our impact with the world triggers feeling, perception, inclination or intention, and how that leads us to focus on this, that or the other thing. So this is um, Nama Rupa. Now, of course, we could spend a lot of time unpacking all of that. And it's Nama Rupa together that um, generate what we call consciousness. At least this is how the Buddha describes it. A consciousness occurs when Nama Rupa happens. As the, as the text says in the 20, Sanmuta Nikaya 22.56, with the arising of name and form, there is the arising of consciousness. So consciousness, to put it uh, simply, um, is um, an emergent property of an organism interacting with an environment. It can't be reduced to just stuff going on in the brain, um, but... It's something that happens when it, an environment, a world, impacts an organism that feels, perceives, inclines, attends, and then we can say, I'm conscious. Consciousness is the overall awareness of that um, experience that has been allowed through these interactive processes. It's quite a similar model to what's described in a book by a neuroscientist called uh, Alva Noe, called Out of Our Minds, Out of Our Something, Out of Our Minds. And, and that I found very helpful because that seemed to, again, not, it seemed to recognize that consciousness emerges through the interactions of an organism with an environment rather than trying to understand it purely in neurological or subjective terms. And that seems to be very close to what's going on here. Now, by contrast, and now will you turn the page over again and go back to the second passage. The second passage is a, is a passage from Marjama 38, and it concerns a dialogue between a fellow called Asati the fisherman's son, who's a monk, He's a follower of the Buddha, he's been ordained, and it seems as that he's also a teacher. And um, the Buddha gets wind of the fact that Sati's saying something that um, is not quite what he's been teaching, the Buddha's been teaching. 
And so Sati, when, when he's sort of, the Buddha says, okay, what are you talking about? And Sati says, as I understand the Dhamma as taught by the Buddha, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths, not another. What is that consciousness, Sati? It is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there as a result of good and bad actions. Okay, now the, now the, the surprise, misguided man. <laughs> to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dharma in that way? Misguided man. In many discourses, have I not stated consciousness to arise upon conditions? Since without a condition, there is no arising of consciousness. Origination should, that's samudaya, arising of consciousness. Now, again, there's a lot compacted into this text. What Sati is, um, uh, Sati believes that consciousness is a kind of given, something unconditioned, unconditioned awareness. And it's that unconditioned awareness that goes through the round of rebirths and it never really changes. It's somehow independent of conditions and that's perhaps what allows it to continue from life to life. It's also driven by, by, by karma in some sense, by actions. And the Buddha rejects that. Now this might sound strange to us because we're often... It's often suggested in some Buddhist uh, philosophies that this, act, this is actually the way it works. That's why this text is surprising. It, um, it, 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 it conflicts with what is often taken to be Buddhist orthodoxy. Monks, consciousness is reckoned, and here he gives an example, by the particular condition dependent on which it arises. When consciousness arises on I and forms, it's recognized as I consciousness. And then he goes ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and tastes. Just as a fire is reckon, reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it, it burns, when fire depends on logs, it's called a log fire. When fire depends on grass, it's called a grass fire and so on. So here we have a very clear um, rebuttal of a view that had slipped into the early Buddhist community, which basically had reverted to the Upanishadic model, the idea that consciousness is often identified with Atman, with Brahman. Uh, consciousness is somehow unconditioned, pristine, um, uh, and which animates us at our deepest level. That is our, our, our truest consciousness. And the Buddha seems to turn that whole thing on its head and says, no, consciousness is not what gives rise to our being born in the world. Consciousness is a consequence of our being born in this world. Consciousness is as ephemeral and as contingent as anything else. So for the Buddha, the five aggregates, including consciousness, nama, rupa, vijnana, including consciousness, are simply a descriptions of an impermanent, a dukkha, and an impersonal set of processes that generate what we can call experience. But consciousness is not privileged. 
is not ontologically privileged as being somehow more real than everything else. Yes, we're going to have questions afterwards. Can I, I'm really struggling to finish within my hour. <laughs> and then we, you can start the questions. Um, okay, then I'd like to conclude with um, just the last two passages here, which we'll just really almost have to read out. There are, some of you are probably familiar with Nama Rupa from the 12 links of dependent origination, right? Which, I, again, Avijja, ignorance gives rise to sankhara, inclinations. Inclinations give rise to consciousness. Consciousness gives rise to name and form. Ah, oh, you see, wait a minute, I thought it said... It does say in the 12 links that consciousness, vijnana pachaya nama rupa, consciousness is the condition for name and form. Name and form is the condition for the six senses. The six senses, the condition for contact, contact the condition for feeling, feeling the condition for craving, craving the condition for clinging, clinging the condition for existence, whatever that means, and existence the condition for birth, birth the condition for aging and death. Now those 12 links are the standard model you'll find throughout the canon. But basically, or at least as I understand it, not basically, but as I understand it, <laughs> the 12 links are look like a much later, rather worked theory of conditioned arising that has actually become a metaphysical theory. In other words, it describes how we get born into this world and how after death we get reborn somewhere else. It's within a three-life framework. It's metaphysical. And the Buddha, as we can find from many, many passages, is a teacher who does not concern himself with metaphysical questions. The earliest version of what became the Twelve Links actually only has six. That's found in the, in, in the, in the Sutta Nipata, uh, which is a very early um, collection of verses in the Pali Canon. And there, this is at least in terms of what I've found so far, is the earliest version of this doctrine. And what's striking about it is that it's not an analysis of how we get born and age and die and so on. It's an analysis of human conflict. The Buddha asks himself, why is there so much quarreling, strife, conflict in this world? And then proceeds to analyze conflict. And he sees that conflict arises out of uh, attachment and greed and craving, which arises out of feeling, which arises out of contact, and contact arises out of Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa, again, is where it starts, you see. There's no mention of consciousness in this early model. It's just Nama Rupa. The phenomenal world generates um, contact, which gives rise to feelings, which gives rise to reactive attractions and aversions, and that is what generates conflict. So it's a very this-worldly model that's not remotely metaphysical. It's not saying ignorance is what drives the cycle of birth and death. So again, you can see by just tracking the evolution of ideas within the early canon, how we start with something which is fairly pragmatic and this-worldly, 
And the next thing we know, we have a theory about how the world comes to be and people get reborn, which becomes the orthodoxy. Now, th there is that one six-link version in the canon. There are two suttas, one in the Diga Nikaya, one in the Samyutta Nikaya, that give us a ten-link version. So this is, seems like an intermediate version in which we don't have ignorance, we don't have a sankhara, karma or inclination. We start with Namarupa. And let me read this passage because it's quite, again, it's, it's quite striking. Then, monks, it occurred to me, when what exists does consciousness come to be? By what is consciousness conditioned? Then, monks, through careful attention, same word, manasikara, as in the five nama factors, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is name and form, Consciousness comes to be. Consciousness has name and form as its condition. Then, monks, it occurred to me, this, when this consciousness turns back, it does not go further back than name and form. It is to this extent that one may be born and age and die, pass away and be reborn and so on. That is, when there is consciousness with name and form as its condition, and here's the interesting bit, and name and form with consciousness as its condition. Now it gets tricky. Now we actually have a recognition that uh, it's not a one-way causality. It's a two-way causality. It's, it's a genuine example of interdependence. It's about the only specific example that you find in the early canon. And then I'm, I'm going to have to finish now. And then as another confirmation of this interdependence we find in the Sanyutta Nikaya 1267 Well then friend, I will make up a simile for you. Just as two sheaves of reeds might stand leaning against each other so too with name and form as condition, consciousness comes to be. And with consciousness as condition, name and form comes to be. In other words, they prop each other up. Two sheaves of reeds lean against each other. You can't have one without the other. Now this is, a, again, this is quite difficult to understand. I find it difficult to understand. Um, but the way I would interpret it, and again we can open this up for discussion, is that name and form are unintelligible, unknowable, uh, inconceivable without our ability, without our experience of being conscious. But we cannot be conscious without name and form creating the conditions for consciousness to arise. It's a bit like chicken and egg, I think. So the, the, the picture the Buddha's presenting here, and again it's suggesting because none of these ideas are are much developed. But we have, in these early texts, the idea of experience being the interdependence of consciousness and Nama-rupa. The two mutually supporting and allowing each other to be what they are. So it's a dynamic, interactive, interdependent analysis of 
what we started out by calling experience. So I'm going to stop there and um, let's have um, uh, a break for 25 minutes. I'd like us to go outside in this beautiful weather and to keep silence. Please don't get caught up in conversations and to just walk quietly or sit quietly. One can pick up this text and read through it again. Obviously, if we need to go to the loo, have a cup of water, a cup of tea, please do that. And um, so we'll meet again at half past uh, 11. It's now five past. And then we'll have a short period of sitting and then we'll open up the remainder of the morning for discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.